And so if you have a Bible this morning, you can open it up to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. If you're in need of a Bible this morning so that you can follow along, right in the back of the pew in front of you, you should see a black Bible, and there's an index right at the front that will help you find the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in a series um, simply titled The Authority of Jesus. Now, we just got past the introduction in Mark's gospel, and there, Mark kind of pulls back the curtain. He shows us who Jesus is from the author's perspective. Remember, he knows the whole story. Uh, From these hidden events, what Jesus observed and heard in his baptism, what happened while Jesus was alone in the wilderness, and the basic bottom line for our author is that Jesus is the Son of God and the expected Messiah. And so after giving the summary statement of, uh, of verses 14 and 15, which says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After giving us this summary statement of what Jesus' ministry would look like, the first stories, the first things that are illustrated for us, which we'll look at for the next three weeks, all have to do with Jesus and his authority. Now, authority is a concept that we oftentimes struggle with. It's one of those words that can be a trigger word. It gets our cackles up. But it's important to keep in mind with Jesus specifically because for Mark and for the Bible, Jesus can't just be a topic of interest. We can't just learn about Jesus as we would learn about biology or these types of things. Uh, If we are to truly encounter Jesus, we have to encounter the fullness of who he is, okay? Oftentimes, the way that we read the Bible or the way that we think about God uh, or the way that we uh, think about Jesus in particular is a lot like dissection in a seventh grade science class. We're picking through the pieces, and it's on the table, and we're trying to learn. But we have to remember that according to the Bible, if God is the creator and we are the creation, that's an inappropriate place to begin, okay? To treat God like a topic, to engage with him as if we are the ones investigating, and, you know, if if you would forgive me for my flippancy, God is just laying open on the operating table. A better way to think of this, uh, for starters, is to recognize that it's a lot more like walking into a room, walking into a room with an actual person standing there and getting to know that person. Now, I'll be honest. If you want to put that person on the dissection table, you will learn some things. 
Okay, maybe you'll know what they ate for lunch, for example. But if you want to know the person and not just about the person, if you want to actually know them, then you're going to have to ask them questions. And when you do that, it changes from that frog on the operating table. It changes because you're no longer in control. They get the opportunity to speak. Okay. Now, how much more is that the case uh, if you take... Uh, on credit what the Bible says, that the one that you're asking questions of is the one who made you, is the one who made all things, is the one who all people are solely and fully responsible to. Okay? That when that person speaks, we can't just go, well, that's just your opinion. When that person speaks, it's possible they may not just tell us about themselves, but tell us about ourselves, and that gets uncomfortable. And so it's important that we recognize as we look at Jesus' authority in the next few weeks that that is who the Bible is describing. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God in human flesh. You can decide what to do with that authority, but not what you think of it, only to accept it or reject it. Okay, and so let's keep that in mind. Now, this morning... We're going to specifically look at Jesus' authority in calling. And it's pretty striking to me that Jesus sets out on this mission, this God-given mission, as defined by Isaiah, as laid out by John the Baptist, right? All these things we saw. And the first thing he does is call four fishermen. That's where the story starts. Yes, we have this summary statement that he went about preaching the gospel and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, but how does he begin that ministry? Not alone. He calls four men to come and be with him. So let's read verses 16 through 20 together and then pray. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little far farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we want to put what we've learned in our catechism into practice today. We want to ask that you would come and that you would teach us. We believe your word when it says that it is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and capable of cleaving the deepest parts of who we are. But we also know that we're often blind and even stubborn and resistant to that. And so we surrender to you and to your word this morning. And although we need to seek to understand it and seek to interpret it, God, I pray that we would not leave until your word has interpreted us. We lay ourselves before you and before the authority of your word this morning. And we ask that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a simple passage, isn't it? Just five verses. And what happens is easy to describe. 
Jesus walks up to four individual men, two pairs of brothers, all of them fishermen, calls them to follow him, and they do. Now, it's worth keeping in mind who these four men are. This is the beginning of Jesus' inner circle, which we call the disciples. Or after Jesus is resurrected and commissions them, we call the apostles. Okay? These are the beginning of the men who would write the New Testament, who would go across all of the earth preaching the gospel of Jesus and lay the foundation of the church. Um, but it's also worth mentioning uh, that especially in Mark's gospel, they're here not just to tell us about Peter and Andrew and James and John, but to tell us about all who follow Jesus. In the gospel of Mark, uh, the disciples operate as a place to, to play, uh, uh, as people to put us in the story. Okay? We're supposed to step into their shoes. Unfortunately, uh, one of the ways we know this is because in Mark's gospel, the disciples are more foolish and more hard-hearted than any other place. We will con constantly see them misunderstand what Jesus is saying, uh, overzealously go in the wrong direction. We will constantly see them balk at the gate in front of them that they're supposed to leap over. Uh, in fact, Mark's gospel ends in confusion, frustration, and fear. And one of the reasons is because by the time Mark is writing his gospel, Christianity has become controversial in the empire of Rome, and it's, it's starting to endure persecution. And so there's a question, and the question is as simple as this, will the church fail? And Mark wants to go, please. <coughs> Do you not know our origin story? Do you not know where we come from? The weight of the power of the gospel, the future of the church, and God's whole plan does not lay on the shoulders of the church. God loves us and uses us in our shallow, fallible fears, anxieties, and failures. And so here, the disciples uh, are, are set in front of us, and we'll see this over and over again, to look at our own experience of following Jesus. In fact, although these are the first four people Jesus calls, he continues to call and to call and to call. Really quickly, look over at Mark chapter 8. Look with me at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, okay? The disciples at this point are chosen. All 12 are named, they're summoned, they're following Jesus. And he calls them and the crowds, and this is what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, the command that Jesus gives to follow him is a universal command. It begins with these four men, but it doesn't end with these four men. And so it's helpful for us this morning to look at the authoritative call of Jesus Christ that lays on our own lives. So, with that being said, let's, or that being said, let's look again at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Okay, the first thing that I want you to observe this morning is that it's Jesus that does the calling, 
Jesus is the one who does the calling. Now, if you read John's gospel, we know that all four of these men already had encountered Jesus. They were already familiar with him. They'd already heard of his teaching. In fact, they had, in a, in a lesser way, already been called to come and learn of him. Read John chapter 1, you'll see this. But here in Mark, this is a much more line-in-the-sand call. Okay? When they leave fishing here, they don't leave it for the afternoon. They leave it indefinitely. In fact, Peter tells us later in this gospel, he says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. While they follow Jesus, they leave their families at home, they leave their work unfinished, they leave their hometown entirely. In fact, we can say with full clarity, knowing the rest of the story, that this is the end of a major chapter of their lives and a beginning of one that will roll out till their deaths. Okay? It's a significant thing, but I want you to notice here, it's not Peter, James, John, and Andrew who go looking for Jesus. And that has to be reiterated because when Jesus has become a household name, we generally think of us as the one calling. I think of the Depeche Mode song, or maybe you heard Johnny Cash's cover, uh, Your Own Personal Jesus, do you know it? The chorus is all about the fact that I can be your Jesus, just pick up the phone and give me a call. And I think that perfectly reflects how we often think of Jesus, as ready and available when we need him. There was a book a while ago put out that was a study, a sociological study, of the religion of Americans under the age of 30. It was a survey that was relatively broad on their belief system, and the belief system was labeled by the man doing the study, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay? That's kind of the general religion of all Americans. Moralistic, meaning we do believe there's good and bad and right and wrong. Therapeutic, meaning God is there to help us when we need him. Deism, meaning other than that, he's not really involved in human affairs. Okay? It's that therapeutic aspect that has almost uh, entirely invaded our understanding of Jesus. In fact, it may even be here be that this morning you have come to church looking for God. Now, I don't actually want to deny that reality. I want to talk about a deeper reality that's at play that underlies that. Okay. The reason why it's good news that Jesus comes looking for us is because in our heart of hearts at the deepest level, we don't honestly come looking for him. You see, take Adam as a paradigm. Go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, a clear command is given, don't eat of the tree, Eve eats of the tree, Adam eats of the tree, and now we have this problem. This problem in our relationship as human beings with the God who made us. Sin creates division. It cultivates death. It separates us from God because God is perfect and holy and cannot live in close quarters with, cannot tolerate sin. Now, Adam knows the rules. And he personally broke the rules, but what is his plan of action? His plan is to hide. His plan is to cover. They make coverings for themselves to cover their nakedness, and they hide in the bushes when they hear God coming. But what does God do in the story? He comes. It's not Adam who goes looking for God in Genesis 3. It's God who comes looking for Adam. And Jesus walking the face of the earth is a perfect demonstration of this. 
God's not sitting in heaven, according to the Bible, waiting for mankind to figure it out and come back to him. Instead, God became a man, came to us, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and then freely offer us an invitation back into relationship with him. And so that's very important because it means even if you find yourself seeking for God, you have an Achilles heel in your search, which is you're seeking for the God you're looking for, the one shaped by your own parameters, the one by your own understanding of your needs, which is very shallow. We want God to help us pay our bills. God wants to save our souls. Think of how many times people come to Jesus and they go, I just need a little healing, Jesus. Next chapter in Mark chapter 2, four friends are going to bring a paralyzed man and they know that Jesus can make it so their friend can walk. They actually decimate some random stranger's roof to get him in front of Jesus because they know that's all that's needed. And so in the middle of Jesus' teaching in this crowded house, the roof opens up and this man's lowered down on a pallet. And what are the words out of Jesus' mouth? Not, I heal you, even though he does that by the end of the story. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's not why they're there. That's not what the man is after. How do you think the friends feel at that point? You know, it's a a double take at the very best where they go, wait, what did you say? Jesus has a mission that is so much deeper and so much better than our mission. But there's another great thing about the fact that it's Jesus who comes, and I want you to notice that Jesus comes and meets them where they are. And they're not even in the temple. They're not at church. They're just minding their own business, mending their nets. They're fishermen. And they're out of the Sea of Galilee. This is probably early morning, earlier than it is right here, because they're fishermen. Uh, And Jesus is walking along this beach, and this is where he gives them the call. He comes to them in the midst of their lives, and we will find as the story rolls out, these are not impressive men. Okay, Peter, as a fisherman in Galilee, has a hick accent, one that's identifiable by the cultured, and will get him in trouble later. Peter, as a fisherman in Galilee, does not know how to write. And so when he does write the letters we know as First and Second Peter later in the New Testament, he uses a secretary to do it. Peter, who's impulsive and very quick to trust in himself and will say the night before Jesus is crucified, if anyone stands against you, I will get in the way and I will give my life for you. And then will deny him three times. This Peter. John. John and James, his brother, are known by Jesus, a title he gives them as the Sons of Thunder. They're called that because they want evil to die at any cost. And so there's an occasion where an entire city rejects Jesus, and Jesus is leaving the, tape, uh, leaving the town, and James and John come to Jesus and they go, hey, why don't you just summon fire from heaven and burn that place to the ground? That's why they're called the sons of thunder. They don't have the heart of Jesus at all. Now that's, side note, incredibly striking if you read John's gospel and his letters. There's a reason we call him the apostle of love, but that's not where he started. But as I mentioned earlier, These men aren't looking. They aren't looking. Jesus is the one who's looking. But I want you to notice that there are no 
prerequisites to the call of Jesus. They don't have to be in the right place. They don't have to make a little bit of effort. They don't have to meet God halfway. Okay? Not only are these people uh, a little bit off the map in Galilee of all places, the backwoods of Israel, but more than that, they're just as fallen and broken as the rest of us. Jesus doesn't call these men because they're the right men for the job. He doesn't call them because they're the most uh, righteous or qualified. Uh, in fact, uh, they're going to be a constant liability to Jesus' ministry. We see no place here where Jesus says, I want you to follow me because you have done. Okay. And I love this about Jesus because it means wherever you are right here and right now, whatever your story's been up to this point, whatever baggage you have, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever regrets you would fess up to, and whatever sins you would ignore and pretend they're not there, that's the place where Jesus calls. That's the place where God comes to us. Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And 99 of them are counted at the end of the day and safe in the barn. And he goes looking for the one that is lost. And it's significant and it's important for us to remember here uh, that the story he's telling is not a story about sheep, it's a story about us. And like I said, our baseline human understanding story says, okay, there is a place where the sheep are safe I'm not in a safe place in my life. How do I get there? And according to Jesus' story, we get there on Jesus' shoulders. He comes, he finds the sheep, he carries it home, and he throws a party. Okay. But the thing is, we have a tendency, whether for the first time or again after we become followers of Jesus, to think that we're too lost, that we're too far off the map that we're in some sort of no man's land and we have to at least get back to the boundary, to the border of God's will and then maybe he can fix things. That's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and the authority that he has. The psalmist asked this question. He says, if I go into heaven, can I escape you? No, you're there. What if I defend, descend into the depths of hell itself? Behold, you're there as well. There is no place you can go where God can't reach you. There is no depth of hole that you can dig that God can't bail you out. The call of Jesus is so authoritative, he inserts, enters into the lives of these four fishermen right where they are. And I think there's another point that we can draw from this. Uh, and that is that the nature of Jesus' call is a call to leave. Now, that almost hangs in tension with what I just said. God can meet you where you're at is tremendously good news. God won't let you stay where you are is a related truth. Okay? We have to keep them uh, in tension here. And notice what it means for these four men. Look again. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay. Now, reduce this down to its lowest level. 
you think it's a good idea to just leave your nets laying out on the shores of Galilee? Okay. My wife and I lost another package yesterday because we didn't grab it quick enough and it was stolen. Galilee is no better than Capitol Hill. You leave your nets out, they're no longer your nets, okay? But more importantly, like I said, as we read the story, we're going to discover they don't just leave their nets, they leave their career. They leave their livelihood. They leave their families. Now, not permanently, not totally. We know that when Peter uh, is commissioned at the end of this gospel to go and preach the gospel, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, he takes his family with him, as we would expect. But during this time, this call right here, it's all in or not. It's all black and white. There's no gray. There's no easing in. There's no trial period. There's no um, ramping up. It's follow me, and immediately they left their nets and follow him. In fact, it's not just walking away from life as they know it, but look again at verse 19. So uh, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their net, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. Now, is it different for us? In one sense, I think we should say yes. The calling here, at least in its first stage, is temporary. They're to come to be with Jesus for what we know is a three-year ministry, right, as he goes with them. Um, in fact, when Jesus dies and they don't know what else to do, where do we find them? Back in the boats, fishing again, right? But in a greater sense, we need to understand that as Jesus extends this call, to everyone he encounters across his ministry, the call is a call of renouncing. It's a call of leaving. Okay, let me give you a couple of illustrations. So the first and most important is one we don't see here, but we do see in other places. And that, in fact, uh, we can see it in verse um, 15. Jesus is, what was his message? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. One of the things that we have to leave behind if we're going to follow Jesus is sin. The Bible calls that repentance. Okay? And so it doesn't matter what you have going on in your life right now. Jesus' call is loud enough it reaches right into that, but he calls you out of it, and that includes our sins. Now, to be clear here, that's not your definition of sins. It's not your embarrassing habits that you would be quite happy to get rid of if someone would help you. If Jesus is authoritative, then he determines. He speaks and says, this is right and this is wrong. This is true and this is false. This you leave behind. Repentance, uh, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is no fun at all. It's very costly. It's, it's very difficult. Now, to be clear here, this isn't a one-and-done type thing. As we're going to see as we study through the gospel, although they walk away from who they were, they take a lot of who they were with them. Okay. This is why Martin Luther, at the beginning of the 95 Theses, this document that started what we call the Reformation, he opens it with these words, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Okay. A regular and consistent renouncing. This is how Jesus put it in Mark chapter 8, which we just read. If anyone seeks to follow me, he must deny himself. 
And so there is a cost. Not only is the cost in letting Jesus determine what is right and wrong and forsaking the wrong, but there's also a cost in terms of loyalty. Here, James and John in particular, they leave their father. And in the ancient patristic uh, agrarian society that is Israel, that is a huge deal. Okay? Family relationships are so significant in the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. Right? And when you would marry in the ancient world, even if you were the oldest son and you took a wife, you wouldn't get a studio apartment downtown. You would build another bedroom on your parents' house. You would continue in the work line and the trade of your father. Why are James and John fishermen? Because their dad Zebedee is. Okay? It's all of this, and yet Jesus, Jesus calls for a deeper loyalty. He'll go on in multiple places in this gospel and the other gospels to say, unless you hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, your wife, yes, even your own self, you cannot follow me. Now, we hear that, and we sometimes wrestle with that because we don't recognize that it's a Semitic turn of, a turn of phrase, okay? Hatred there and love are, are one of allegiance, of final, uh, final division. And so it's not that we should show animosity to those in our family, but we have to reserve our final and to- total loyalty for Jesus, okay? What, in other words, what Jesus is saying when he says, follow me, is you have to follow me first. In fact, you have to follow me first in such a way that it's really just follow me only. Because if anyone who's going the same way with Jesus suddenly goes a different way, you have to continue following Jesus. Okay, it's a significant requirement of loyalty. And also, obviously, there's, there's a, uh, a renouncing a leaving behind of all things. Let me check the reference here because I thought I could hold it in my head and I cannot. Turn to Luke 14. Jesus here again is talking about following him. And he calls those he's speaking to to count the cost, to do the math up front. He says, you wouldn't start a building project without making sure you had enough money to finish it. Because if you end up with half a building and zero finances, you're just going to be mocked. He says, you wouldn't go to war against another person if you knew he had a larger army unless you went, is our army strong enough to take them out anyways? And then notice what he says here as as he finishes and gives the application in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so following Jesus here speaks of repentance, it speaks of loyalty, and here it speaks of renouncing. And here it says renouncing all we have. Now, sometimes... Sometimes we mistake this and think that it's something that it's not. And we think, okay, so there's an initial cost to following Jesus. I need to empty my bank account. Okay. In fact, we can even look at one story in particular, which we'll encounter in the Gospel of Mark, where it seems like that's exactly the line that Jesus draws. A young ruler who's also wealthy comes to Jesus. 
And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law, you know the Ten Commandments. He rattles them off, and the man just sets it aside. And he says, I've done all those things since I was a little kid. Now notice that. He knows he's still not on the inside. He knows it's not enough. He's looking for what it takes. And it says that Jesus loved him, and he said to him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man went away sad. Now, we need to avoid two errors here. One is to say that Jesus doesn't call us to renounce all things. The other way to say is that the reason he calls us to renounce all things uh, is because there's something wrong with the thing inherently. Every once in a while I hear somebody misquote the words of Paul in the pastoral epistles that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the passage says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There are definitely other roots of evil, and it's not money itself that makes you a bad person. Okay? Wealth is no more wicked than it is righteous. It's just an object. Okay? The problem with the rich young ruler, it's not that selling everything he has will get him into the door of following Jesus. It's that his wealth is blocking the door. Do you understand the difference there? His wealth is where he finds his identity. It's where he finds his security. It's where he finds his importance. It's where he finds everything he needs, and therefore he doesn't know how much he needs Jesus. Wealth is not wicked, but it is sometimes dangerous because it makes us feel like everything's okay. Even if life is miserable, even if you're Gatsby himself and you have all things and all of the despair that comes with it, you still go, look at me, everything's great. We can deceive ourselves so well and that's the concern that this man has for this, or that Jesus has for the rich young ruler. He doesn't know how much he needs Jesus. And so this renouncing is not one of emptying your bank account or selling your house or, or living on the street or any of these things. It's an open-handedness. It says, everything I have now belongs to you. Do with it what you will. And most of the time, God makes us a steward of what he's given us where we are. In fact, to contrast with these four that he says, leave your homes, come and follow me, take the demoniac that we'll encounter in a couple of weeks. This is a man whose life is such a mess that he lives in a graveyard is feared by all of his neighbors and family and relatively left alone and spends all of his days howling out and cutting himself. And Jesus heals him to the degree that when the city comes out to see, he's just sitting there calmly next to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, let me follow you. And Jesus says, no. He says, instead, go home and tell everyone about the good work that God has done for you. Okay? When God calls us, he calls us to leave. But sometimes he calls us to leave and then sends us home. When God calls us, he calls us to renounce all things. But sometimes that renouncing is just to put that to use. These are the things that I've given you to steward. What we're really talking about here is defining who Jesus is. And according to the Gospel of Mark, the whole New Testament, and the entire scriptures, Jesus is Lord. And so there's only one way to follow him, which is that he determines 
every step in your life. You don't just have to surrender where you live or your loyalties. You have to surrender your dreams, your ambitions, your goals. You cannot follow Jesus without following him, without letting him lead, without letting him determine your future. Now, oftentimes, God is so good and so sovereign, he's already placed in your hearts the desires that he wants to build from. But I promise you this, even if you recognize that the call God is putting in your life seems like it's going in the wrong direction, it's the right one, and you will thank him for it. But that's what the call of Jesus means. It's a call to leave everything else behind and follow him. There's one other thing I think we can see in the call here. Going back to Mark chapter 1. Look at the words that he speaks in verse 17 to Simon and his brother Andrew. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I think it's probably pretty easy to get the the play on words that Jesus is making here, right? They're fishermen. And he says, I want you to fish for me, but we're not fishing for fish. We're fishing for men, okay? These are the ones who are going to go out and become the mouthpiece of Jesus' call, right? Jesus says, follow me, and you will call others to follow me. That's what the, picture moves, uh, what the picture means here. But I want to focus in on those two words in the middle. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, we might just read that as I make you fishers of men and make you become doesn't seem to add anything to it. We should notice that it's an intentionally awkward phrase. Okay? But first off, I want you to notice here that what Jesus is calling them to is something that Jesus is going to do. Follow me and I will make you. That's the promise of discipleship. Not follow me and you will make for me. Not follow me and you will do for me. When we ask the question, what is a disciple? There's two places where we tend to get it wrong. Uh, in modern English, in modern thinking. The first is mistaking the difference between a disciple and a student, okay? There is a Greek word for student. It's not the one that Jesus uses, okay? A student studies a topic. A disciple studies a person, okay? So you can be a student of mathematics and you study Pythagoras' theorem, but if you're a disciple of Pythagoras, you follow Pythagoras. You live with Pythagoras. You listen to Pythagoras. That's the difference, okay? Jesus isn't just going to make them students of his message. They're followers of his person. And then the second thing is, although both of them are students, the goal of discipleship is not head knowledge. It's not just merely to know more about God. It's what uh, a book I was reading last week called Transformative Learning. The goal of discipleship is to change who you are, to grow into a different person, to become what Jesus is making you. And that's not very hard to see when you look at the things Jesus tells us, because most of it is commands. Do not be afraid, instead pray. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Most of what Jesus teaches his disciples is a lifestyle, a way to live, and it's a new way to live. And so it's important that we recognize that, but once again, notice, notice that this is not just us saying, yes, I want what you want from me, I will do it. I will study it my hardest. I will make myself what you have called me to be. It's a lot more like surrender. It's God make me what you want me to be. One of the metaphors both the Old and the New Testament uses for the distance between God as creator and us in creation is the relationship between a potter and his pottery. Right? Now, when it comes to making a piece of pottery, where does the work come in? Is it the clay? Is it the clay bending and striving and straining that makes a beautiful vase? No. Now, even if we're talking about sentient clay, right, like we are, clay with a will, the worst thing we can do is to buck at the hand motions of the potter. We want to lean into, we want to not resist, okay? But the work, the strength, the energy is not the clays, but the potters. Jesus gives the greatest promise of Christianity here, which is not, come as you are, but I will make you what you should be. That's why the renouncing is so important, okay? Because we have to take his direction and we have to lean on his power, and we have to become dependent on him and not on our status or our finances or our own abilities at all. So why that weird turn of phrase? Why not just I'll make you? It's I'll make you become fishers of men by dropping the verb of existence there, to become, okay? The is, is, are, was, to become, to be. Basically, he shows us here that he's not doing anything less than changing who we are. Discipleship is about identity. I heard John Piper say once that God's goal is not just to make you a better, or not just to make you make the right decisions, but to make you a better decision maker. Not just to make you love other people, but to make you a lover of other people. What Jesus promises to do here for James and John and Peter uh, and Andrew is to make them new people. And if you read the New Testament fully, you'll see how extensively this is to the degree that, Jesus, uh, that Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has died. It's the new that lives. Completely new personhood transformation. And this is great news because as we see here, Jesus has a task for James and John, for Peter and Andrew. Follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I have a work for you to do. He's not just calling them to transform them. He's calling them and calling them into service. And this is the way Christianity works even still. God doesn't just call us to salvation. He calls us to participate in the work that he is doing. He gifts us and enables us for that work. He gives us different places. He summons us. Like I said, he may just call you home. That may be your mission field. But he calls us all into mission. 
But the primary way he does that is not merely to just give us our marching orders, but to make us new. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you that if you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, you'll discover what makes Jesus worth following. Right now, the way the Gospel's lined out, the line is drawn in the sand up front. Mark wants you to count the cost as it is. But we never rightly count the cost unless we weigh the value of the reward. We never finish counting the cost until we understand the worth. Jesus tells a parable about a man who's walking through a field that's for sale and finds an, incount- or an uncountable treasure. And so he takes everything he has and he sells it to buy the field. Why? Because in the field is this treasure which will pay back in spades what he spent. As, as we continue, I would encourage you to keep coming and studying through Mark with us. And I would encourage you to look at who Jesus is and what he did for you because it's in that it's in that, that you balance the scales and go, okay, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus and what is it worth? It's worth so much that these men, these four men, will not only live their lives on behalf of these things, but sacrifice their lives on behalf of these things. All four of these men died for Christianity. Paul puts it best. He says, I've come to the conclusion that neither death, nor life, nor power, nor principality, nor things that are, nor things to come, nor the sword, nor anything else in the world can separate me from the love of God. That's the worth. That's the treasure. That's the value. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, this is what it looked like when you began following Jesus, but it's also what you look like to continue to follow Jesus. And so my questions to you would be things like this. Have you fallen into the trap of feeling like you cannot come back to Jesus till you get back on the path? Are you in a time right now where there's some great blockage, great hindrance, great shortcoming, great failure, great struggle that disqualifies you? And the answer is just no. Instead of looking for Jesus, ask him to come and find you. He did it the first time. He will do it every time. And the second has to do with that leaving all things. Maybe you can even reflect on how that was when you first became a Christian. How everything was on the table. None of your life was solid or determined. You were listening and asking what God wanted. Have things started to sneak in and become just as important to you as Jesus? Just as important in determining your future? Have you gotten to a place where the plans that you lay, you lay alone? Where you haven't even asked God what his will is because you've got it all figured out. And then if discipleship is this daily transformation, my final question for those of you who are Christian this morning would be, where is the cutting edge of God's making you happening right now? And what does it look like to lean into it? 
God doesn't just call us to Africa. He doesn't just call us to something eight years out that takes a lot of preparation. He daily calls us. And to be really frank, he daily calls us to die. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily. What is it that God has laid his finger on recently that says, this needs to change? Will you let me change it? I believe that right now, the voice of Jesus calling is just as loud as it's always been. The question is not, what do you think of that call? The question is, will you accept it or will you reject it? Because Jesus is the authority. Let's pray. Father, for myself, I have to confess this morning that there are probably places in my life I can't even see where my knuckles are white because my fist is gripping so tight on things. My way. Change everything but this. This is too important. This I'm content with. I pray, Lord, by the power of the Spirit that you would loosen our hands that you would uh, bring light to our minds so that we would see the things that block the door and hinder us from stepping into a deeper calling, a greater following, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us the simplicity of the heart of that old hymn that says, just a closer walk with thee. Precious Jesus, that's our plea. And I pray as well, Lord, as we, we follow so closely that you're all we see, that we, like Peter and Andrew and James and John in our own way, would step into the service that you've called us to, to our own personal assignment, to use the gifts that you have given us, to proclaim uh, the message in the way that you've given us to proclaim, to invest in the kingdom of God, the talents and the minas and everything you've given us. And we just praise you, Lord, that you are the God who came calling. The great truth is not merely that we needed a savior and cried out and you came. It's before we cried out when we weren't truly crying out, when we were crying out to all the wrong things you came and you cried out and you called and you invited and you said come all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. As much as discipleship may be work, ultimately, Lord, it's surrender, it's rest, and it's peace. And so I pray that we would enter into it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship this morning and take some time to respond,